Here's a reminder from Percival Scientific. Science hasn't stopped, and neither have we. Visit the Percival Scientific website to see our new 4-color and 7-color LEDs for plant growth. Welcome to Planttopia. I'm your host, David Godori, and I'm a plant pathologist at Cornell University. Any listeners who have never met a real live plant pathologist can be forgiven. We are a very low visibility, but very high impact profession. We protect the world's food supply from disease-causing fungi, bacteria, viruses, and nematodes, all of which want to eat your lunch. This time on Planttopia. I think microbes are naturally devious. They have to be, right? They, they, they're social and devious. You might be thinking of bacteria as the Rodney Dangerfield of the microbial world. They are simple, one-celled, primitive organisms, and they just don't get any respect. But they're far more complex, sophisticated, and organized than you might ever imagine. In today's episode, we'll meet their advocate. We think of them as single-celled organisms, but in fact, they're more social than us. Sometimes you even have cells that all look identical and they all have the exact same genetic material and yet one group of them will do one function, maybe they'll form a stalk and other ones will have another function, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll swim up that stalk and form a crown on that stalk. That's right, bacteria are not just simple and brutish. They can talk to each other and to plants. They're social organisms. Those that are parasitic can be organized to a degree that they hunt in packs. And in a sense, they can even publish fake news. Today, we'll learn how the line between their causing benefit or harm might be better controlled by listening in on their conversations. Hi, I'm Gwyn Beatty. I'm a professor at Iowa State University in the Plant Pathology and Microbiology Department. This is a really interesting group of, oh, you might say primitive uh, microorganisms, but that might be a little judgmental. Uh, Would you like to serve as the advocate for the bacterium? They have been here much longer than we have. They've had many, many more millennia to to evolve. I wouldn't call them primitive at all. In fact, they, they are primitive in their cellular form, but I think in the way that they have figured out how to adapt to the world and manipulate their environment, they're far ahead of us. Their diversity is overwhelming just because they haven't been around for so long and they've been adapting to all these different n- niches. It's, it's amazing how many different ones you can find, even on a plant. The, the poor bacterium is the, the, the Rodney Dangerfield, perhaps, of, <laughs> of the microbe world. It doesn't get any respect just because of its rarely, uh, it, it's, it's somewhat simplified structure and, and perhaps function. But it's a tough life being a bacterium. You could uh, perhaps relate it to an episode of the, the program Survivor. So what are the challenges that bacteria face in, in their environment, in particular on the surfaces of plants? I think it's best to first think about how they get there. <laughs> how does a microbe even land on a, a leaf surface? 
And when you think about that, you wonder, are there microbes floating free in the air that just happen to casually land on the leaf? And a bacterial cell floating free in the air is probably not alive. Um, it usually needs to gather with a, with a bunch of buddies. And so you might have an aggregate uh, or just some group that got attached to some other soil particle that got that got moved along and it lands on the leaf, it might splash by the soil or the water. But I think some of the, the more interesting ways are they arrive on the dirty little feet of insects. <laughs> they land, they walk across the leaf, and they defecate onto the leaf. And all of these are, are different ways that the bacteria get there. I don't know when this podcast episode will air, but as we are conducting the interview, there's a dust storm from the Sahara that is in the news, and these little dust particles are somehow finding their way across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, what are the chances that there are, are bacteria on those particles? There's an excellent chance there's bacteria on the particles, but I think the follow-up question is, is there a good chance that they're alive or not? Bacteria in the air tend to have the greatest chance of living if they're encased in some organic material, like a piece of snot. You know, if you have their bacteria that are attached to a, a plant or an animal part or, or an earthworm part and, and it gets cast into the air, the more it's enveloped in the, the slime material that comes from other organic substances, the greater chance it has to survive. So at least my envisioning of dust particles from the Sahara is they probably get awfully dry on the surface. So you may eventually have a wad of dead bacteria that are arriving, but I wouldn't expect there to be a lot of live ones. But this might ex explain the, the infectious nature of the sneeze. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the bacteria have landed on the leaf and now they have to survive to uh, thrive, multiply, and in the case of a pathogen, cause a disease. So what are the barriers that they must overcome? That's a great question. The way I picture a leaf is something like Nevada at night. If you're flying over Nevada at night, you see great expanses of darkness, and every now and then you see a few lights, and then suddenly you come across Las Vegas, and it's metropolis central. So if you're a bacterium that lands onto a leaf, if you land out in the middle of the desert or there's no other organisms, the, the tools you need to survive are going to be different than if you happen to land in the middle of this metropolis of other microbes. So I think that the toolkit that they, they have to be prepared for anything, but those that land away from other organisms have a lower chance of surviving and they might be landing in a, a really kind of a, a, a landscape that looks like a desert. It may be kind of like the, the, a, a hill where all the water has run downward. There's not much water around. There's not much food. They might have the resources to, um, to change the environment. And those are some of the exciting ones. Um, and we can talk about how they might change their environment. But the other ones that land in the middle of the city, the, these cities might be a bunch of bacteria that have emitted slime. That's often what bacteria have around them is slime. And the bacteria that lands in that slime layer is automatically protected from, from being desiccated because there's not enough water or food. The bacteria have arrived and 
they may have landed in the middle of this biological desert. So a bacterium is going to get lonely. How do they find each other? I think they create others more than find others. <laughs> so, so bacteria uh, are, are different than most other organisms in that they um, don't go through sexual reproduction. They only divide by themselves and create more of themselves by this what we call binary fission. One cell turns into two, which turns into four, which turns into eight. And pretty soon you have a, a bunch of other organisms that look just like you, but you have a crowd and you're surrounded. So if a bacterium lands uh, in, in this desert area of the leaf and it has special properties, like it might have the ability to produce something that causes a well of, of food to come up from the leaf. These would be something what we would call a surfactant. So, so if you picture a leaf surface, it's like wax, right? So it's, it, it, the wax tends to prevent water from coming through the surface. But if, if bacterium can create something that, that, that makes little passages through that wax allow food to come from below the wax layer up to the surface, then the bacteria can multiply and they can produce more of the substance that lets more of the food come. And pretty soon you have a colonization of this area. You've got a bunch of cells. And so they've created what was a desert and they're actually turning it into uh, at least a village. Once this village has become populated with uh, bacterial clones, um, do they have a means to communicate with each other? Oh, absolutely. So they can, um, they don't communicate as we think of by talking, but they certainly can communicate by sending out chemical signals. And these chemical signals diffuse to the other cells. And in fact, bacteria can even tell how dense their town is by how many signals they get in. And once the the village reaches a certain density, they start to do things that they wouldn't do at a, at a lower density. So for one example would be if a cell lands on a leaf and maybe it multiplies and there's two or, or, or four of them, they will move around still exploring to find where the food sources are. But once the, a village is dense enough, then they know they have food there and they stop exploring so they turn on genes that allow that that make them stop moving and and and, and going over the surface of that leaf or that leaf area so we have urban planning among single-celled organisms <laughs> oh yes definitely again returning to the um, perhaps unfair stereotype of bacteria as simple single-celled organisms uh, we don't generally think of them as having sensory apparatus uh, in any manner similar to perhaps animals. And yet, uh, we know from some of your work that they actually respond to uh, differentially to specific wavelengths of light. So uh, they may not see, uh, but they respond. How's that work? <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a fascinating area. So, so when bacteria land on a leaf, you think about the um, what they're seeing, and and their environment looks like um, it's filled with signals like lack of water or presence of water, lack of food. But light is a major um, universal signal that you find on the surfaces of of leaves and soil and so many properties of the earth, and so. 
It's not surprising that over the millennia of exposure to light, bacteria have evolved proteins that when they see light, they change their shape. And that allows that protein to now interact with other proteins, which eventually turns on genes that let the bacteria do something that maybe takes advantage of the fact that they're in light. This um, is most commonly thought of for bacteria that can um, take light and turn it into energy, right? So photosynthetic bacteria, little mini-like plants. But many bacteria that don't use light for energy still use it as a signal to tell them to do things. And, and that actually is one of the things I'm quite interested in is what do the bacteria do in response to light? And what are they getting out of it? Uh how are they using light? How are they interpreting light to their benefit? What do they do with that information? Well, I can tell you my favorite hypothesis that I'm working on at the moment, and that is if that the bacteria are sensing the way the day changes. So throughout the planet, early in the morning, bacteria see light. And before they see light, it's dark, it's, it's fairly wet, they can move around the leaves. And when they, when they start, start to see light, you still have moisture around on the leaf. But at some point, that sun is going to start evaporating the water. So if the bacteria know that that water is going to be evaporating soon, they can use the light as a signal to prepare themselves so that they're not suddenly without water. So they can start to change their, their, their cellular st structure and, and hold on to more water so that when this change comes, they're ready. So I, th I, I think of this as what, uh, an anticipatory signal that light is something that allows bacteria to anticipate changes that are going to happen in their environment as the day starts to progress. So we see sunlight as white light, except when there's a rainbow out. As scientists, we know there are different wavelengths of light. The bacteria know this as well? Yes, they do. So they have proteins that actually sense different wavelengths of light. And this is, I think, one of the ways that they can tell what time of day they're in, right? In early morning, you tend to have far red light coming in. And as the day progresses, the, the blue light is scattered less in it, um, through the atmosphere. And so it reaches the leaves. And so bacteria will see more blue light as the day goes on. And so they can do things early in the morning when they see far red light that may be different from what they would want to do in the middle of the day. So one example of what they might want to do is is move into the leaf. So leaves have have openings, doors, the, the stomates, and if the bacteria are able to go through the stomate, they get inside the leaf and they may do different things there. For example, if it's a pathogen, it may want to multiply there. So it might be that early morning, the bacteria want to, to move around um, and maybe in the middle of the day, not so much because it's dry and uh, the stomates may be open or closed. So they're, they're using light in a way to adapt to the plant's response to light. 
I think this is another way to look at bacteria responding to light is, is they, it's kind of a dance between the bacteria and the plant and, and the plant is responding to light and, and opening stomates and turning on photosynthesis and turning it off. And the bacteria have reasons to dance in a different way. For example, when the, the plant is, is fixing a lot of sugars and making them, the bacteria may want to be where the sugars are. But when the plant is no longer doing that, um, it, it may want to be in a different place. So it may use light signals to allow it to better exploit what the plant has to offer. There's a component of sunlight that really isn't information. It's it's harmful, and that's I'm thinking of UV. How are these bacteria that are on the for those that are on the exterior of the plant? How are they dealing with ultraviolet light? The reality is there's not a huge amount of ultraviolet light that reaches the leaf, but certainly some does. And when it does, it has a lot of energy and it tends to break um, DNA. And those breaks are essentially mutations. And so the bacteria that are on leaves have enzymes that that repair these um, DNA breaks that occur. They also, again, encase themselves in... um, the slime, and that can reduce some of the movement of the light into where that sensitive DNA is. Um, and there's probably other ways that we, we don't know all the different ways that they protect themselves from UV light. I, I kind of work in this area now in using ultraviolet light to uh, actually suppress plant pathogens. And uh, the, the old maxim applies, the poison's in the dose, while the the irradiance of UV coming in, it might be at a very low level, over a long period of time you can accumulate quite a dose. So imagine these um, protective and avoidance mechanisms might be quite important in survival. Absolutely. And I think um, if you start looking at where the bacteria are on a leaf, you generally will find a lot more on the lower side of the leaf than the upper side of the leaf, which is one of the ways that there's avoidance. It might be because they were killed on the leaf surface. But as I said, if they can get into the leaf, they also can have some protection um, just by the fact that the plant is absorbing some of that light. Plantopia is brought to you by the American Phytopathological Society, or APS, to honor the United Nations celebration of 2020 as the International Year of Plant Health. Healthy plants can help us solve world hunger, stabilize the world's climate, protect our forests, and add beauty to our lives. Now, back to the show. So we've all met people who might be described as uh, perhaps, um, well, he's not a bad guy uh, once you get to know him, (laughs) uh, which is a nice way of saying he's a jerk, but you'll get used to it. Um, So are there bacteria like that where they tend to trend towards something that you, you could perhaps kindly call symbiosis, but is perhaps less than that? I think if you think about bacterial interactions as, as either beneficial or, 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 or detrimental to a plant, you're going to find the full spectrum. Um, I like to think of it as the, bac- the bacteria 
in general, live on the plant without doing any harm initially, and then maybe they evolve to take more than their fair share. So they start to become more of a pathogen. They, they, they are causing the plant to release more nutrients than the plant can easily put up. But if the bacteria can keep evolving to the point where they actually start giving something back, so we have mostly bacteria on the roots that we know do this. They become more symbionts. And so you have um, the plant giving them food and the bacteria giving something back to the plant in return. And now you've got, yeah, a positive situation. It's always context dependent because it might be that if the, um, if the plant doesn't need what the bacteria is giving it at that time, then the bacteria would be considered a pathogen. But the, if the plant needs it, it's now a benefit. So is the, the process of quorum sensing or the bacteria talking to each other, finding out how many of them are there, does this play a role in, in pathogenesis? Do the, does this actually become a strategy by which bacteria build to a critical level before they change their behavior be, to become invasive? Yes. So bacteria manipulate density in um in multiple ways, it depends on which pathogen. So the most famous example of bacteria using um, their numbers against the plant, it's something we think of as a stealth approach to pathogenesis. The bacteria go in in, in, in low numbers and they don't um, deg- start degrading the plant. So the plant doesn't really notice the bacteria are there. And then when the bacteria reach a very large number, all at once they say, we are high enough density. They send the, 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 the signals are sensed and they turn on enzymes that degrade the plant tissue. And in this way, because they're all doing it at the same time, they overcome the plant defenses and the plant doesn't really have a chance to, to mount a defense. And the bacteria, in that case, often cause um, what we call soft rot, soft rot. So the bacteria turn the, the, the localized plant area into mush. And that's a, um, a, a wonderful way for the bacteria to, to get huge amounts of nutrients from a plant. So it's a very effective pathogenesis strategy. It sounds like it's a it's such a complex uh, war of information between the plant and and the pathogen. How has this information been used to perhaps uh, tilt the game in the, the plant's favor? I'm thinking by by plant breeders. <laughs> yes, yes. So so. In a sense, you can think of plants as listening in on a conversation between the bacteria. So when the bacteria are mounting this um, multiplication of numbers without sending their signals out, they are, they are undercover. But if the plant is engineered to produce this signal molecule, then when the individual bacteria sense the signal, they start producing these enzymes and the plant knows it's there. So in essence, if you can engineer a plant to make the bacteria squeal, to make them talk and send these enzymes out when, there's only a, when they're only at a low number, the, you can give the plant a, a, a chance at defending itself before it's overwhelmed with, with, with these pathogens. So... In grapevines, for example, um, 
if you engineer the, the grapevine to produce these quorum signals, as they're called, interrupting the um, ability of the bacteria to talk with one another at various stages of pathogenesis at any stage can actually upset their ability to cause disease. So one way of, of engineering plants to be resistant is to have them make the signal. Another might be to have plants make an enzyme that breaks down the signal. So then the plant, the bacteria can't speak with each other. Um, those are two ways that have been effective so far. Another way is to introduce another bacterium that can either produce a signal or, or degrade a signal. And this is what we would call biological control. So instead of engineering a plant, you're simply using other natural microbes to come in and prevent the pathogens from, um, from communicating with each other. So this is, this is um, one of the many ways that you can have one organism upset the pathogens. And it might be their communication lines. Other ways is just to have other organisms directly kill the pathogen. So these are all forms of biological control. It sounds like such a devious process. Uh, <laughs> 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 I think microbes are naturally micro devious. They have to be, right? They, they, they're social and devious. So bacteria have evolved to the point where they completely depend upon one another. You don't find one cell getting away with, with, with things. They tend to work as a group. And so we think of them as single-celled organisms, but in fact, they're more social than us. Sometimes you even have cells that all look identical and they all have the exact same genetic material. And yet one group of them will do one function. Maybe they'll form a stock and other ones will have another function. Maybe they'll, they'll, they'll swim up that stalk and form a crown on that stalk and thus and sometimes bacteria in fact swarm around other bacteria and eat them so they actually hunt in packs so they're they're actually really sophisticated in what they can do i take back everything bad that i ever thought or said about <laughs> bacteria being simple <laughs> they are amazing creatures We've talked a lot about pathogens. I guess I'd like to talk more about the good guys, the ones that actually benefit the plant. So another area of the work that I'm quite interested in is um, the fact that plants have evolved to depend on the, their, their microbial residents as partners to help them through tough times. And so if, if a plant is in an environment that has a high level of a heavy metal, you might have bacteria that actually help get rid of that heavy metal. But if you have plants that are in an area where they don't have enough water, it turns out the microbes can be really beneficial in helping to, to funnel water to the plant. And without those microbes, the plant might not survive. I think this is one of the most exciting areas of research at the moment is understanding how plants have developed partnerships with microbes that help them get food, help them get water, help them break down pollutants that are inhibiting their growth. All the different ways that microbes are benefiting plants that we not only haven't understood, but we haven't even really set up to understand because we've been trying to grow an 
in agriculture, we've been trying to grow plants under these perfect conditions. We give them all the food they need. We give them all the water they need. We put them in a soil that we don't expect to do anything except support the plant so they can use the food and water we give them. But if we grow them under less ideal conditions, the microbes can can help out a lot. And I think agriculture will benefit from depending more on, on these microbial functions. Do plants have um, anything akin to the, the gut commensals that you might find in, in mammals where we depend upon bacteria uh, in our digestive tract to, to help us uh, gain access to nutrients? Yes, yes, absolutely. So, so roots, we've been talking about leaves some, but the roots of plants are coated with microbes. And these microbes are doing just what many of the microbes do in our gut. They're transforming the nutrients that are in the soil and putting them into a form that can be taken up by the plant. If you try and grow a plant in the absence of microbes, um, like if you grow it in a, a sand that you sterilized, you'll notice that that plant is not healthy. They completely depend upon these microbes for abundant growth. They might they might stumble along, but they grow well. They they need um, communities of, of microbes that are are definitely transforming nutrients. But what you find is that these communities are actually really really complicated. There's as many different microbes in there as, as there are stars when you look up in the sky. There's just a, a lot of diversity, and we only understand uh, a smidgen of those functions. I've, I've grown grapevines in sterile uh, tissue culture, and I can attest to the fact that they don't look like anything grown in a vineyard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're all of three inches high, and they never get much bigger than that. <laughs> and the, the plants not only form these partnerships that we often don't really recognize, but the microbes form partnerships with other microbes. So if you get bacteria and you think you've isolated it and you're growing this, what you think is a clonal population in the lab, more often than not, there actually is a, a very low number of a different organism that's also present, that they're dependent on each other. I mean, if you think about this, it's just like people, right? We, we rarely grow as, as independent unions, units. We have families, we have dependencies, and we may only depend on, if, even if you're in a, a cabin in Alaska, it may only be once a month that somebody comes in and drops off some vegetables for you, but you need that. <laughs> and, and I think the microbes, when you grow them in culture, they have these um, dependencies on the presence of a few other microbes that you may not recognize because they may be in low abundance. But microbes depend on each other as well as plants depend on microbes. This is why I think we often talk about not only a plant, but a phytobiome, that it's it, um, a plant is an entire biome of interacting organisms. And it's not just even a plant. One plant might depend on another plant, and they, they may actually exchange their microbes across the roots from one another. That it, It's a very interdependent web. For more information about the International Year of Plant Health, visit us at plantopiapodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by John Bryce. Thanks also to Mark Gleason, Jim Bradeen, Laura Isles, and Roshni Karate. I'm your host, David Godori, and you've been listening to Plantopia. Plantopia.